Welcome again to Permaculture Tonight. We have an incredible guest tonight. We have Stuart Muir Wilson. That's the grandson of Bill Mollison, co-creator of Permaculture, the concept of permaculture and the author of The Big Black Book. We're talking about a permaculture, uh, permaculture a designer's manual. It's an incredible opportunity that I, I had to speak to Stuart and to learn firsthand about early permaculture, about um, his perspective of his grandfather, and about teaching and where permaculture has been and where it should go and where it's kind of you know gone off gone off the path and gone astray. And Stuart has like the firm, some of the firmest conviction I've ever met in a person. He's amazing like that. He uh, is all about his message. He's living that message. So check this out. Here we go. Let's dive in. From my nephew up the hill at grandma's house. Did you, uh, growing up, it sounded like you lived pretty uh, close to um, to Bill, uh, your grandfather. Were you guys on the same property? Yeah, uh, we lived 20 minutes away in a town called Wingard um, or down the end of the road, which was probably five minutes away. But yeah, I was always pretty close by and spent a lot of time there growing up, yeah. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. pretty good. My uh, my son's gotten to have that privilege. Uh, my, my father-in-law is a really amazing man, and uh, my son's been able to grow up really, I mean, living... 30 feet down the hill <laughs> yeah. uh, this whole time it's so it's, it's a pretty important relationship for a kid to have with a grandparent like it's um a different one to a parent of course but it's more more of a friendship or kind of a, a friendly mentorship yeah so it was really really great yeah it's an awesome thing to establish yeah absolutely so um how long have you been how long have you been um going to mexico and and working on these uh permatecture um how, how do you describe them because they're kind of they're humanitarian effort uh structures right so you're creating these yeah. structures and then you're giving them to people in need yeah so i work with a few oh, a lot of different nonprofits, uh a lot of different community groups indigenous groups um Mayans, Mistakers, so yeah, there's a lot of lot of different social groups I'm involved with, and schools down there, and projects are still running, um, non-profit foundations are still support. But yeah, the projects are quite varied, from um, training humanitarian non-profit volunteers and fixing up um, kind of really badly functioning organisations, so they resemble some type of functionality or giving their workers permaculture training too, which is um, pretty foundational, but quite often absent in humanitarian and aid work too. So yeah, there's a lot of that work still needs to be done in Central America and Mexico and around the world for that matter, but it's just such a massive disparity really. Yeah. So I started doing that work when was it 2010 was my first trip over and my last trip was 2015. 
Wow. So that Cuban, um, that talk you gave at the Cuban um, International Permaculture Convergence was right after that first project then? Uh, that was after, oh no, it would have been, would have been earlier than that. It would have been 2010, 2009. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so I've had I've... a few, I think, three major trips over there. Yeah. But I did a lot of more humanitarian work after that trip to Cuba in Monterey. So before that, it was just uh, more environmental projects with schools and um, non-profit organisations, really, and community groups, and um, giving um, people with a low income access to education because that's one of my bigger frustrations with permaculture is that it's kind of limited to people with money and that's yeah. not what it's all about at all it's about providing everybody with the access to education so when you charge i don't know 500 $1, $1,500 for a pdc that's only allowing a very yeah small percentage of the population in but if we can somehow make money out of doing permaculture rather than teaching it that makes a lot more sense to me um and it should that should be the foundation of the practice. The foundation of business should not be teaching permaculture. That's completely unethical from what I understand. Okay, interesting. All right, so let's dive into this because you might not know, but I, uh, I'm a curriculum expert, um, and I started writing the public school curricular arc for uh, permaculture. Great. And so my whole thing is that um, the English versions uh, I'm writing – and then volunteers are translating it into over a dozen languages. And then those those translations I can give away because I've got you no know, I didn't I didn't, you know, basically didn't write that, you know, someone else translated it. So what uh, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And so it becomes this I'm, I, I don't have a nonprofit set up. I kind of believe that you need to be able to support yourself before you go to that place. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's foundational. Yeah, you can't, if you do it like me and just work from year to year, yeah, you don't end up in a good place financially. Yeah, or and I got you, a wife. you end up <laughs> limiting yourself in the long run, really, if you just sacrifice your own personal savings or whatnot. Yeah, savings. Yeah, good, good base that would be an interesting from. thing to have. Savings. Interesting. Yeah, I've never had one of those. <laughs> I, I was oh, a public yeah. school oh, teacher. Course. Yeah, that's something I'm, I'm developing at the moment. It just allows me to do bigger projects on a bigger scale too. Yeah. So, and having a, a positive relationship with money, not a um, negative one based on capitalism's relationship, having using it as a tool, not a goal is really important as well. I absolutely agree with that. Um it's uh, it's definitely so. I I was listening to your talk and it really resonated with me because, I. Well, for one thing, I came from a perspective. Then this doesn't this, this first part doesn't overlap, <laughs> but I came from a perspective of being uh really well educated, uh, being given everything, um, and being you know wealthy and American right compared to all the rest of the world. Um, yeah. and I moved out to the West coast and started substitute teaching in Fresno and Fresno, California, um, has a higher gang population than LA. Um, the air there is, is only it, like only Bakersfield is worse than it. And so I like was like really like, and I was a professional musician 
So I went, I got this crazy education uh, and I, I went back and got my master's degree and all that later. But um, I was just a musician and I just started substitute teaching. And then I was like, wait a second, you guys aren't being taught anything. And, I, and it was like this moment where I realized that like I had an obligation because of the knowledge that I had to give back and not from a place of like um, know-it-allness or, yeah. or, or, or like condescending. It was like, yeah. you've been given this and these kids are right here in front of you. Well, uh, yeah. This is your moment. Go. And so I was like, and I, I'm getting chills right now thinking about it. But it was like this moment in my life, and I and I heard it. I heard it in your talk, where you're like, and 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 I and I saw that that, and and I don't know if 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 you traveled with your parents or your grandparents, and saw this on your own because I I grew up in a part of America where all those things are pretty much hidden, in New England, all those kinds of things are hidden from you, and so it like yeah. really kind of hit me in the face, and then I. I just changed and then later on I was a teacher and I found myself constantly uh, wanting to tell kids things and not being able to like do that because it created this political tension and then permaculture came out of nowhere for me and allowed me to like really help so many people so fast that I started uh, writing because I mean I don't know if you, you've noticed but um, most of the books are pretty academic but they don't have to be. Um, so I was like the guy who took James Joyce and was like translating it to like high school kids, um, and working on stuff like that with like sophomores. Um, and so permaculture to me, I was like, oh, I can translate this. Um, so that's what I'm doing. And, uh, I'm not really quite making a living at it, <laughs> um, yeah. but, but yeah, I mean, I teach, uh, I teach like, uh, cooking. Uh, seed to table cooking. I teach seed saving. I teach uh, a lot of skills, holistic based skills, but I do teach and sell curriculum for permaculture. So I don't know if I'm sinning uh, in your eye. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Like that's it's you do what you have to do to get by and survive, and um, but it's also yeah, giving back. Um, in addition, but you want to be operating from like a positive place, not a, a, an emotional, um, selfless place. If that makes sense. You want to have a good relationship with your work as well. And I think what you're doing sounds like you're going in the right direction. It's just um, networking with other people and into other support networks. That's been really um, life-changing for myself as well. So... Um, permaculture is a, a great network, um, but there's also other amazing humanitarian education, um, civil rights, civil justice that have incredible support behind them as well um, that are doing very like-minded work with permaculture as well. And I think using permaculture as a tool for collaboration and empowerment um, as well as education such as your experience can really, you know, start to address these grassroots problems and um, from this top-down kind of government, you know, problems we've seen generated. So, yeah, I think it's, for me it's kind of a, a point of, of reassessing my goals and the way I'm going about them and uh, where my priorities are 
in terms of achieving my long-term goals. But, uh, yeah, my family wasn't very um, financially supportive, but we always had the opportunity to um, work and save. So I think that's kind of, yeah, where I'm coming from in all of all of this. You've always had to work for what you want and it's never um, handed to you. Like there is quite a lot of money um, on Bill's side of the family in permaculture, but that's never been, you know, sh- shared with the rest of the world due to his, his wives or um, family for that matter. Like his daughters kind of live in adject poverty and I think that's a great shame too. So there's kind of a real disconnection between Bill, you know, the permaculture... Um, genius and him as a family man too so you've got to separate them and that's something the family hasn't been able to do but at the like he's coming to into his last days at the moment and I think he's come really coming to peace with his family too which is really nice to see wow that's very powerful um I I, I mean as a musician like that's always uh that's always like the the fatal flaw right you uh, yeah. you figure yeah. out how you calibrate yourself to the world and then calibrating yourself to the world is not calibrating yourself to your family um yeah so yeah he sacrificed quite a lot and that included himself and his family but i think um his message of permaculture transcended his character flaws for sure and that's something a lot of the family haven't been able to come to peace with but i think they come in their terms and um it's quite beautiful to see how healing forgiveness can be in these last few days he's got now. So it's quite a, yeah, quite an incredible thing to witness. Wow. And that's so powerful because you actually knew your grandparents. I, uh, I saw my grandparents, you know, six times, seven times. That was, you know, we went on vacations a few times, you know. Um, and, and I thought I knew them. But after seeing my son grow up, with uh, my father-in-law there every day, you know, constantly just, and he, and you know, he's a, he's an online teacher um, too. So he, he works uh, th- through a college. And so he's always here uh, on the property too. So it's, it's, uh, I can't even imagine it. It's, it's the right way to be. I mean, it's natural. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it's a thing I don't take for granted. Like it's something my parents, never really had or mum never really had she didn't know Bill until she was 25 like he was traveling the world and she'd lost contact with him because he left when she was very young and so there's a lot of and I didn't know him until I was 12 like he suddenly came into my life full-time then because he decided to you know stop traveling and just start a farm in Tasmania so it was kind of a, a revolution for my little childhood but yeah it's quite quite abstract how it all happened and how it all unfolded too so yeah it's definitely yeah it's it's been a a massive influence on the world and because i had such an intense long upbringing with him he's been a massive strong influence on me too but it's learning how to you know resolve that kind of um dilemma because he operated from a place of quite anger and and compassion like there was this conflict in him that drove him so much and 
that wasn't a very emotionally healthy place to come from um, because he's just so angry at the ignorance of the world and that's what drove him to teach so much. It's quite a unique motivation. So, And his genius was so unique, it really he really struggled to understand how stupid people could be. And it was quite, yeah, like I could... I was, I was always a student, I was always listening and he would never acknowledge it when I told him something too. So, yeah, it was kind of, yeah, more of a, a mateship relationship too as well we had, I think. But, yeah, it's, did some so, um, really good work together as well. Did you pick up the uh, your teaching pedagogy from him? Because I'm a, I'm a teacher, I have a master's degree in education, and that's kind of where I'm from. So when I teach all this stuff, I'm like doing, I'm doing like the nine forms of intelligence. I'm, I'm like, I'm doing what I did for my, my classroom, you know? Um, and I just noticed that there's like these highlights of things that you said. And I'm like, well, that's best practices for teaching. You know, like the way you work with the people first and figure out what their context is and then yeah. build meaning from there. That's like a, that's a, that's a fundamental best practice of of being a, a good teacher um and, yeah and it's, it's a ground up way way of teaching too and that's something bill always taught um taught me as well like i was the student but he also let me teach with him when i was 16 i took, taught my first pdc with him and i um i taught composting and mulching and how that um improves um pioneering succession and all those things so i had a lot of confidence in public speaking drummed into me from an early age and um, he gave me a lot of opportunities to travel. I just had to work and save up for my ticket. So, but the ground up way of teaching is something I also learned at, uh, that was reinforced at university, but Bill said uh -huh. always listen because if you don't listen, you just look like a fool. And um, what, would you, what would your name be for that kind of approach like I call it ground up but um like instead of top down well it's what's personally um relevant it's it's called relevancy so it's it's what's personally okay. relevant to the child in the learning situation and you find the overlap with their own culture their own personal history um and then the things they like so it's it's those arenas that you're overlapping with and my whole thing with kids is it's like you know more than you think you do it's like oh you, yeah. you think this vocab word's hard you already know it and it's like I, then i take things like i took, would take disney movies and i would cut clips of them up and then show them how they all know the metaphors the similes all the english stuff you know they already already knew it all you know, and so I just like ran them quickly through that. And then they're like, oh, wait, I know this all. And I'm like, of course you do. And then they're already saying yes. And they're saying I can. And then I can take them out, out to sea from there, you know. And yeah. so, yeah, and I, it is a concern um, in permaculture. And I, you've harped on that in your talk. You harped on that recently in the, in the interview with Hannah uh, for Permaculture Magazine. And it, it's a concern I share um, because it's just a part of, it's not even just best teaching practice. It's called being polite, <laughs> right? Yeah, human decency. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And have, having the respect, I think, 
and um, humility to listen, and the 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 humility to know that I don't know best um, is quite liberating too, because you can take a solution from someone else and listening you can't stand the chance of learning something new but when you're talking you're only repeating what you already know so that's why it's best to always listen and when you listen you also get empowered with ideas and things too so when i often work with community they know what's wrong and they know um the practical tools they need they just lack lack the practicality of getting getting it done so often what my role is is just running a workshop or a course to fulfill the needs but that said there's a balance between that and the kind of for want of a better term ignorance of the community because they've got no idea that they can grow their own food or what seed sovereignty is or food sovereignty is or seed saving so it's yeah i think there is a balance between listening and i think like you say knowing knowing the best thing to teach to or knowing what's missing in the picture as well. So coming up with a balance between those two things and then projecting forward into a, a kind of bigger picture into the future, into the future uh, I think gives students a lot of, you know, hope and inspiration and empowerment. And that empowerment um, I've seen come out of short courses in Mexico has been incredible because everybody's so hungry for this permaculture information, but there's teachers down there teaching in inverted commas permaculture. It's not permaculture at all. They're just bastardising it with capitalism. Um, they're charging $1,500 US for a PDC in Mexico and there's yeah people living in poverty right on their doorstep and they're not you know, acknowledging or having a conversation with them. And I had, like, one of my first trips was just going around Mexico and fixing up this individual's projects because he'd, he'd ignored the foundational, you know, rule of listening to the problems of the community instead of trying to fix it with, you know, swales and compost bins and herb spirals. That's not permaculture. That's like, technique. It's, it's about appropriate technology and appropriate solutions. It's a system of design, not, you know... Design yeah. or yeah, herb spirals that's using them appropriately. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about that for a second because um, there, uh, you talk about how you know the definition of a permaculture should be ever evolving, and uh, I've been working on on this for a bit, working with kids in definitions because you got to scaffold it down to the, but it has to be universally true, and so it can scaffold up, um, and. There, there's a huge problem in, in the internet right now with, with techniques being confused with permaculture. And so with kids, I'm trying to, like I'm, the definition I have in the kids book that I'm working on is permaculture is a way to see the world through nature's eyes to provide for people and the planet beneficially. And it's that universal, that lens, that for me is the way I see it because it's not an herb spiral. Um, it's not a swale, it's not key line, it's not, you know, a yeoman's plow. It's not, it's not all these different things that are tools and techniques that have moments and have appropriate application. Um, and I think that what, what's going on, there's a few of the different things going on. It's like exactly what you're saying, but I think it has a lot to do with the way we educate kids, um, in America, especially. 
we educate them to believe that what we give them is perfectly true in all instances and that they if they use this are perfect too does that make sense yeah yeah for sure and nothing's but, that way <laughs> yeah i think that's that's great but we can't um as a movement i don't think we can go around changing um the the definitions of words like permaculture they're important to explore like you've done but um when we start change and adding forth ethics which i've seen people do i think we starting to walk into dangerous territories and we're starting to create different churches of a, of a different movement if, if that makes sense so we're starting to create like an anglican vegan branch or uh, suddenly created you know Catholic, that's happened actually yeah, i mean Catholic, there is vegan permaculture you know, industrial and... agriculture branch it's time to bring it back to to the ethics and the principles as foundations of the movement and then work from that premise and then come up with systems of design based on those ethics absolutely um, as a tool for development not as you know we're going to change the definition of permaculture like Animals have always been intrinsic to permaculture, but they're not used in vegan permaculture. Like people are just changing the words and changing the system of, you know, the I, system it is. And it's a synthesizing like whole system parts functioning. And that's when, yeah, you, you start to kind of walk into that dangerous area of changing the definition of words. And then there's always that gray ambiguity around, yeah. Yeah, I was mostly referring to like the whole sustainable turning into regenerative. Uh, folks' understanding is starting to get a little bit more detailed, and they're realizing, you know what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and sure. I was just yeah. referring to that part of your talk. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, yeah, definitely. No, it's just just important to kind of like yeah. I have to do it a lot too. Like um, in my work, I just it's important to have that um, professional accountability between. Um, individuals not so I'm not saying that you're you're doing this but I've come across it quite a lot in Australian people go oh that's I'm quite personally offended but they shouldn't be personally offended like grandpa always or Bill always brought me up on my faults like bang there they asked you'll fix it like that's not the way you use that word or you'd make me pronounce nuclear 15 times until I got it pronounced rightly like it's just something that's been drummed into me but um if we have these foundational words right, um, yeah, we've got a good premise to act from. So it's something that's, I think, yeah, really important for us to all move forward with the same words and definitions. Absolutely. But, and I think yeah, that... Well, oh, go ahead. Um, so you're doing work with the regenerative re agriculture movement in the US at the moment. Is that with Mark Shepard or Darren Dolby? Um, I'm working... Uh, I mean, I've... I, I talked to Darren, I talked to Mark, um, I talked to Grant Schultz, to John D. Liu. Um, I'm working with, I mean, it's probably too many to list here. Um, yeah. I'm working with dozens of permaculture experts like Elaine Ingham, uh, Stefan yeah. Sokobiak at Miracle Farms. Um, I'm just working with all, as many people. I've got, over, I've got 19 case studies. Um, I have two final case studies that I, I'm, I'm working on. I want uh, to include Rosemary Morrow's um, time in Cambodia, and I would love to include um, your work in Mexico. Um, because a lot of people think that, in, and especially in America, they think that permaculture is a gardening technique. And it is, yeah. and that's why I say a lens. I'm not trying to change the definition, I'm trying to get more exact. 
So I'm trying to get people yeah, to understand exactly. that it's a way to apply ethics to whatever you're talking about, whether it's the garden, your refrigerator, your vehicle, or your love life. It doesn't matter. It's it's a way to be to be ethical. It's a way, it, yeah. it, it, you know, and so it doesn't matter what the context is. Um, and, and I'm excited. Yeah, that's quite an articulate way of describing it, I think. Yeah. Oh, thanks. It's a great way of describing it. So one of the things I really liked about uh, your teaching style, um, and I could, uh, when you were giving this talk, this whole idea of don't get happy. Because uh, I had a football coach. It was an English teacher who, who was always about hubris, but he would never use that word. And he was like, don't get happy when we would score a goal. And I really feel like that's a critical, that's a critical component that is missing uh, in a lot of the, these dialogues. It's like, like you said, it's like, oh, well, someone did this thing and they made a mistake. They weren't paying attention. It's when we get happy is when we stop paying attention. We lose that critical eye. Yeah, that's an interesting point of view. And I think in terms of that, it's not so much creating those happy moments, it's creating a meaningful life for yourself too. And I think that's when you start to have, when I, that's, yeah, instead of achieving your goals, like only being happy for that, you know, one one or two days after you've achieved your goal or whatnot, finding meaning in, in the everyday and in your works, a better source of uh motivation and kind of fulfillment too so it's yeah, it's really important to have uh, um, that kind of relationship with with your work too but um rosemary morrow's um yeah really great kind of inspiration for me personally but also um ali sharif but he's a really hard man to track down and pin down uh he started the kind of Latin American organized organized Latin American permaculture movement, and um, is doing a lot of work in Eastern Africa and Mozambique at the moment. But he's got a, a fascinating story, but he doesn't like it to be to be published for various reasons. And the other person that taught the first international PDC with Bill in '91s, um, Robin Francis. So should be a good person for you to interview too, I think. And she she would do should do Skype and whatnot if you're doing. Wow. Um, but okay. Another another. If um, you come across that permaculture pioneers book, you know I've been debating about buying that, and I was like, oh well, you could pay forty dollars for it, or you could just Skype again with Roe, and that's like the best thing ever because Roe is like a marathon Skyper. Like you start the yep. Skype with her and then it goes and you're like, wow, strap in. We're doing this. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah I, have it's you, it's kind of it's, it's an interestingly written book. Like it's not it's written by David Holgram and it's kind of like having his say on how the whole kind of departure between him and Bill went. So it's got a bit of a bitter twist at the start of it, but it is a good reference guide for other other, you know, the wider collective of the permaculture pioneers, teachers like that, second or third generation coming up. It's not completely comprehensive, like it misses a few key people, but um, as a resource for people's different approaches to it, I think it's great. But then again, it falls into the trap of permaculture only focusing on it um, as a farming technique or an environmental restoration technique as opposed to 
a system of design that can be applied to a lot of different problems. And I think aside from that, um, like the foundational ethical uh, implementing all that, that's a really big interest of mine is how to apply it as a system of design tool to say architecture or, you know, carpentry or um, as an ethical everyday practice for sourcing materials for building a house. Like, yeah, it's it's really um, a tool for for developing further, I think. And that's laid out in good foundations. In the introduction of permaculture where Bill goes into quite some depth um, into all the principles and into permaculture designers manual. Um, so yeah, the tools are out there. It's just, I don't think, um, everybody reads them, which is a bit, um, a bit weird for me. Like, well, I think that they don't understand them and then they start yeah. trying to read it and then they, all right. So like the beginning of the soil section by bill, Bill's like yeah. basically doing the apologia beginning of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales where he's like, you know, we really could use some more research in this arena. You know what I mean? And then he goes yeah. into the chapter and shares with what is up to date at that point. But it's like yeah. people don't recognize what he did there because it's literary. It's academic. And for me, yeah. I, I mean, I, Shakespeare was my colloquium at NYU. So for me, I was like, ah, yes, Bill, keep going. You know yeah, yeah, exactly, but not, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not everybody thinks in that terms. There's so many different other types of learners, like you're saying. Like there's practical learners, there's you know experiential learners, there's people that are good at writing. And I was never really good at one of those, but I had that skill kind of drummed into me by Bill, like learn how to write. And I didn't really learn how to write until I was about 25 after I'd been at university for three years. So it's one of those things I had a really strong ambition to do was to be able to articulate myself writing and you've got to you, like I, i'm not a, a writing or reading person but it's a skill you've got to kind of develop and that comes back to that source of motivation or drive or do you have that source do you have that drive to be kind of understood and to be able to articulate your ideas effective and my writing's not at the level i want it to be but it's kind of, it's continuing to practice it as well too. So that's a big thing for me to learn and to realize the blind spots in in your knowledge as well. well and to realize you don't know everything you don't know. So, um, yeah, I'm working on quite complex and, and massive scale environmental projects here um, in Australia at the current time. But they're quite, like, they're quite, got a massive biotechnology and engineering focus so to talk about that from a permaculture point of view you can't really um or you can't you can't understand it but to get all the kind of knowledge and professional skills i've had to go into a lot of different other environmental groups so i've had to engage the kind of blue economy approach to the business modeling i've got a kind of um you know, engage a crowdfunding sector, the pitching, like venture capitalists. So there's all these other kind of business skills. And if we get all those kind of working together around the right type of environmental project, we'll have the tools we need to, you know, um, lock up land. And that's sounding like Darren Doherty now. <laughs> yeah. Dar Darren's about that too. Uh, and you both, I've noticed, uh, and same with John D. Liu, have worked with the World Bank. Um, 
Is that an increasing trend? I, I really hope so. Um, the World Bank's an interesting one. Um, I've only done peer-reviewed journal articles um, on their work there, but they, they've got um, ethical dilemmas like everybody else. Like they're responsible for. Um, oh, I know. There's a really, <laughs> a really good, really good book um, called Planet of Slums, and it's written by Mike Davis. And that's a really good book on using World Bank authors to expose political and environmental corruption in Latin America and in wow. um, through Africa, and it really puts it uh, um, puts it down in black and white. Like this is why global poverty exists, and I think we've got to kind of understand why it exists from a capitalist point of view before we can solve it from a permaculture one. So that was quite um, that was quite foundational in me going to northern Mexico because um, at the time of I think it was the '99 um, census, um, Monterey had the like highest rate of um, Latin America and um, poverty um, next to the richest suburbs. So there was like literally Ferraris and Maseratis and Aston Martins. Um, in a garage next to a slum, so and that created great poverty and you know drugs and violence, and that's still something. That social poverty is something quite crippling and disempowering about the kind of capitalist survival of the riches. And one of the things that kind of excites me about permaculture is it's a tool for collaboration and getting everybody working together instead of getting everybody competing against each other too. Yeah, and we really need to get that get that in motion soon. Uh, growing up, uh, when I was a teen, I mean, I, I had an older brother who became a, a social scientist. He, um, I mean, he would feed me Noam Chomsky to read, and meanwhile, I'd be like awfully depressed as a as a <laughs> as a teen yeah, learning it's not about. Good time to read <laughs> but 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 at the same time, like it really prepared me so that um, when I got to college, all the other kids were bummed out. I wasn't. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go do stuff now. You guys can be bummed out about what you just learned, but I'm going to go do stuff. And then when I learned yeah. about permaculture, I was like, well, this is the answer. The facilitation that you're talking about in your, in your, your PDCs where you're there as a conduit for people to solve their problems and to get connected with the answers that they can provide for themselves. It's so powerful, and I really, I really just wish and and pray and and urge energy and and resources towards you. And I hope that all the listeners do the same because um, you you've got the uh, you've got the the real deal by the tail right now, and and you're doing it. And you just got this right livelihood award. I mean, we're talking about how we need to align our purpose with our actions yeah. and our hearts and our minds. And that's what I was able to do as a teacher doing this curriculum. Um, and so that for me, it's like lit up my life and it's allowed me to be a better parent, allowed me to be a better person and all this stuff. But I, I just know that that's what you're doing in every class with it. And I want all those people to go out and teach other people in that way, you know? It's very yeah. exciting. and listening, Listening is a foundational, a foundational skill to those kind of courses as well. And 
Yeah, it's more of an exchange of information between teacher and student and than just one way from, you know, teacher, teacher to student, like, I know best, this is how it is. That's always been the wrong way for me too. But um, just with the right of livelihood, that was kind of an error um, published by the magazine, unfortunately. I didn't win the right of livelihood award. I've just got the, I'm just the um, permaculture ambassador for the movement. Oh, okay. So, so, but I've got the support networks that my grandfather had access to. So I had a Skype session with them probably what would it have been six months ago after I wrote my first article for the International Permaculture Magazine UK. But they said the the permacot the right of livelihood award isn't the big part of the award. What what is important is what comes after it and the support networks and they've got incredible support networks across the globes, um, across the, across the globe in civil just in social justice, um, dealing with social poverty. They've got you know they're tied into some of the most amazing universities in the world. They've got academic resources. They've got um, you know resources with the kind of um, Swiss government with the Swedish government. And uh, all this incredible network of collaboration and tools, and it's kind of my dream to see permaculture get to that level of collaboration and sharing too. Yeah. So um, that would be incredible to see how the right of livelihood could support permaculture to become this more openly sharing and open resource information. So we don't have this kind of great rich poor divide we do have in the permaculture movement it can be this amazing kind of sharing entity or sharing network that empowers everybody to become great friends and great mates and building this incredible life incredible you know paradigm shift that we know we're all capable of but sometimes we feel disempowered when we're just studying at a desk in a room by ourselves but we've got see all these amazing things on the internet, but we don't quite know how to engage in that. And I think that's the big thing for me that the right of livelihood broke down, um, broke down those walls and opened up those doors as, as well. So for, for that as, um, a model and as, as a inspiration for me is quite big at the moment. And I'm quite keen in pursuing that line of professional development and, and work. So, it was a big thing to for them to it was yeah, a massive thing for me to it was very humbling um to allow for them to allow me to kind of pursue my grandfather's work with that the right of livelihood foundation too so but yeah when i when i go to um sweden I, i'll definitely you know do a few courses um for them and a few gardens and workshops and um that kind of thing as well but yeah incredible group of people and i encourage everybody to um look at their website and look at those resources and have a bit of a you know system of design power drawing session how we can tap into those resources as well so it's something and there's um, an incredible amount of those organisations around the world too there's also um the barefoot atlas which is kind of a non-profit um sector which maps out like borders with um builders without borders and wow. this different projects of building yeah, composting toilets and it'd be great to see 
permaculture is working through them, but not in a very kind of organised system of design fashion. It's a very grassroots movement, which is incredible. But is there? It's an interesting question to pose. Is there an opportunity for something you know further to develop? And yeah. often I find it's asking asking the right question um, to get the right kind of, mm-hmm. you know, um, information because just by changing a few words around in the question, you can get a completely different answer or a completely oh, yeah. different intent. Oh, yeah. I, I love that. That's how I feel like when I was a musician, I feel like everyone was afraid to ask like these producers, like U2's producer Steve Lillywhite, right? Everyone's like afraid to ask him questions when we're hanging out with them in the studio. I'm like, guys, this guy recorded boy. And I'm just like turning to him and go, so on that song, you know what I mean? And it's like, why not? Right. You're here. Um, And so you're you're starting to answer uh, my next question. Um, So you talk about how there's a lot of danger in some of these assignments. And the number one thing I've experienced as a high school teacher was that young men and some young women want to go out and get involved where there where there's danger and there's something good to do and something physical and active to do. And so what would you say? Because, I mean, if, if you're a high school teacher at this time period in America, you've probably noticed in the past eight years that the college thing has shifted to military. And so all the yeah, kids are going crazy. into the military now and they're actually being picked they're being handpicked early by the military and then wooed with like video games to sign contracts directly to the military and then are removed without parent consent. Well, <laughs> well, in the U.S., that 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 targeting of you know low income youth populations that don't necessarily yeah, my have kids. that option Ugh. that you know kind of white privileged middle to upper class males have or or um, use for that matter. That's their only option and. Um. Yeah, it's quite quite the reality of that dystopia. It's like that George Orwell novel, nineteen eighty four, but it's actually happened. It, it has. I taught that's that book. Incredibly scary for me, and incredibly, you know, frightening. Like we don't have to look forward. We don't have to, you know, look into the future for this dystopia. It's happening right now before your very eyes. And wake up, people. Let's do something about it. That should be your call to action. That should be your call to, you know make a change and you know be the change not just talk about it as well oh, and i yeah. think we've also got a i've got to ask more of myself but also you know if in that you've got to fulfill your potential but also realize your boundaries as well so you don't you know burn out or end up in an, your, your own little um financial co- collapse so it's important to recognise those boundaries and realistically when I went over and did permaculture voices I couldn't afford it but I did it anyway and I'm still paying off that trip now. Ooh. So it's um it's you gotta be willing to um, you know, do do the mass and do the balance like is is this worth the, the cost or the risk to my to my own life. And when I've done those high risk projects in northern Mexico they haven't been quite as dangerous as what even the locals have thought about because I haven't done that simple thing of just listening to the people. And when you're listening to the um, people living on, you know, less than a dollar forty a day between four people, like it's well below the, you know, global 
um, definition of poverty, and this is right over the border from one of the richest countries in the world, the great United States of America. But it's crazy when, you know, even in the US, there's quite an alarming percentage of poverty too. So if we ask, we can't model permaculture on capitalism because we're just mimicking an already, you know, kind of evil uh, system. So in terms of that, that's why that kind of ethical conversation we have, Matt, is so critical and so, so important. Yeah, because, because we it's do need talking to talking about something it. quite bigger than just, you know, the ethics. It's talking about human values and where we place those actions and where we, you know, spend our dollar. Do we spend it at the supermarket or do we give it to the farmer that's actually put put the work into growing that food? And um, that's a little way everybody can make a change and a little act uh, a lot of little actions amount to something quite big and quite great in the end. Absolutely. So what uh, what would you say to a young person that's like, whoa, okay, Builders Without Borders, oh, PDCs in Latin America, I don't know anything about this, but I'm excited. What would you say to them? Oh, the same thing my grandfather said to me when I was 21. Like, I, oh, no, I was 19, actually. When I first went to Latin America, I was just this – there's this little island at the bottom of Australia called Tasmania, and that's where I'm from. And he said, just go travel, just go to, to Brazil. So I went to Brazil and it's kind of one of the most eye-opening experiences of, of my entire life, like seeing how permaculture tra- transforms whole, you know, ecosystems and, you know, saving the Amazon rainforest and just incredible broad acre um, work with it. But I'd only had the experience of, of it as a quite a small-scale um, permaculture kind of gardening and farming movement in in Tasmania. So what I'd say to young people is just travel with it as well. Just line up a few, you know, volunteer positions or or you know, with the right type of organisations. Re- do your research of the organisation, um, where their ethics lie, and you know, um, financial obligations and things like that and what their kind of programs they offer to and just go go and do it because that's the best way. And then you'll learn from that, reflecting on that experience as well. So let's scan back for a second. So uh, tell me more about Brazil because um, when you went to this, to see this these sites, uh, these broad acre sites you're talking about, when was this? Because I don't know... Um, other than, I, mean, I think Eric Tonsmeyer's site that he's using for the carbon farming book might be in Brazil. But other than that, I'm totally unfamiliar. So if you could, uh, you know, enlighten me in, in the audience as to, to where you went and what you saw. And I would love to see it now because that was an interval of time. That was, I mean, uh, you're in your 30s, right? Or 20s? Yeah, 29, about to go 30. Yeah. Clock the big 3 um, <laughs> I think I'm going to spend it in Cambodia, though. Uh, the That time, that was the International IPC8, International Permaculture Conference and Convergence in Sao Paulo. Um, that's the video then, with Ro in it, right? Yeah, so that's yeah. where I met Ro and Ali and um, all those kind of amazing, charismatic people. Um, and then we went to Pyrenopolis, I think, for the convergence. Yeah, 
um, for two weeks, which was incredible. That was, um, I think, in Goaz. And that was a, a broad, oh, it was, I think it was 50 acres a site around about then but it was interesting to see how other farmers had taken up they give it you know two years typical two years and then they kind of start mimicking the strategies it's not so much okay here's a here's a class go away and do it they've got to see the proof in the pudding and yeah. then we went for the tours of the ipc conference and convergence in the amazon and that was an incredible experience wow. with um it was meant to be one week, but it blew out, blew out to two or three weeks because um, we got lost on the Amazon for a week, which was pretty incredible with Rose and Robin and, um, <laughs> yeah, like all these, like I think there was 30 or 40 of us and the boat was like had 15 bunks. So we're just all sleeping in hammocks on the top deck and you couldn't sleep in those beds because they all had bed bugs and like, not just flea, but massive bed bugs. Um, so there's some quite some inspiring people to learn from, but we only found out we're lost on there after we'd been lost for, for a week and like we'd run out of food and then we started eating fish and people go, oh, okay, that's a bit odd. They mustn't have packed enough food. And then we started running out of water. So we only had like one, you know, 40 liter container of water. And then we start to, you know, run out of, you know, tobacco. And that's when people really started to panic. Like, I can't get what, yeah, can't survive without my tobacco. We've really got to find civilization now. Oh, my so word. So we're, we're all screwed. <laughs> but, yeah, it was crazy how it happened. Like, the driver just fell asleep steering the boat with his um, feet. So he's just in his hammock and he tucked his foot back into the hammock and kicked the wheel. And the caught the boat to this crazy spiral pattern and then crashed into a tree and then the tree came into this top third story deck where there was maybe 30 of us sleeping in hammocks and it was just like get up Stu and I was like oh no I don't really want to get up I better be important and it was just like snakes and centipedes crawling through these hammocks and all, all the girls were screaming and some of the guys were even more hysteric and <laughs> We're trying to push this tree out. And we're like, wait a minute, we're actually like driving into it. We're actually powering into it. We can't push ourselves out of the tree. So we had to go down, just like punch a driver until he woke up. And then he was able to put the boat into reverse and we actually pulled away from the tree. And after that, we kind of figured, you know, we were a bit lost because it's not just one channel of the Amazon going through through that area. It's like 10 channels and it can be up to, you know, 10, 20 kilometres Right, so we were off off to the side doing this zigzag thing instead of being in the major shipping channel where we're all meant to be. So yeah, it was pretty um, amazing and um, incredible experience. And then we went to three or four different indigenous communities after that that were establishing sustainable cattle farming. And then actually, in, I think it was about 2010, Prince Charles visited the bigger project where we spent a lot of time in Manaus. Wow. Um, and endorsed a lot of a lot of the strategies and um he's wrote about that in his latest book i think it's called harmony or something along those lines but you can find it on his website uh, speaking of books i have my two books that i need to get uh the other one uh, we talked about the permaculture pioneers but the other one is designed for the other 90 percent yeah yeah um so that's that was 
that's got incredible solutions like they're really pragmatic um practical cheap um solutions from really cheap lighting out of a coke bottle a bit of water and chlorine you can put it like the equivalent of a 60 watt light globe into you know circular yeah it's just incredible it has to be seen to be believed in and instead of having you know the hand pumps for water for water wells they've got seesaws with the water pumps in them and designs and ngos so it's a really great kind of index or um shopping catalog uh in terms of um what's available out there and it's a really great practical premise to uh operate from but yeah if i had my time again i'd definitely go through um other organizations and do but yeah i think yeah like a lot of the the violence i've encountered in latin america um to go back to that previous question has been quite quite confronting too and you have to be quite aware of the situation you're going into and i wasn't quite fully aware of how bad the you know humanitarian crimes were or how pervasive the torture or the genocide was and that was something i wasn't you know mentally or emotionally prepared for and that left a lot of scars for up to two or three years and that that is still you know kind of healing in many ways so you've got to be prepared um for what you're going into and to that end i'd suggest doing um a humanitarian a humanitarian briefing course say with the red cross or with another professional ngo i'm not sure in the us like the red cross is really good here in australia but it might be um say the un or something you do something there and that'll give you a social and emotional support network for when you get back and come across that kind of um culture shock as well um, of coming back and kind of kind of trying to make sense of it all as well and reduce the post-traumatic stress but a good way to get around that is just to do a, a light taster project say with an education institution or um friends you might know or just to do a small garden and get to know the culture um and the locals a bit too because that's an education myself absolutely yeah i was the i was the one who broke the mold of my family everyone was going abroad during their college years and i just decided to tour with the base and that's what i that's where i got my experience really was uh leaving well i new york city gave me some experience but it was it was going out and leaving new england and seeing the rest of america actually you know what i saw america in 2006 to 2008 so i knew the collapse was coming and when the collapse came um like it, it, it i was like well i mean cleveland's been boarded up on the outside of it for miles in all directions for years now you know what i mean so i mean, I mean in america right now there's more houses than there are homeless uh, that are empty yeah we we face much of the same issues here um in australia like there's more there's 60 or seventy thousand vacant investment properties in melbourne australia but there's 33 um thousand um homeless australians in mm-hmm. melbourne that's crazy because people and it's that same thing we're talking about it's neo neo capitalism that's yeah. that's that's what's to blame and it's coming up with that kind of professional level of organization 
an equivalent professional level of organisation to tackle it and take it down too. And it's coming up with that paradigm shift. Like I think what we're great at in permaculture is coming up with pragmatic solutions, but we also need political solutions as well. And we need alternative political systems um, and empowerment systems and organisation not to just become like complacent oh permaculture is a great movement it's where it, it's where it needs to be no it has to be a lot more you know organized professionally accountable uh, in order to have that kind of functionality or you know um political uh organization in terms of you know let's topple the head on this beast because that's really why why the the, the world's dying and why um or why it's creating this discontent or disconnection from nature which causes violence which causes you know depression anxiety mental illness you know obesity that's if we're going to get down to brass tacks that's what's to blame is that system that bad system of design of capitalism of separating everybody to make them feel like they're disempowered but permaculture is the very opposite it kind of brings people together to feel empowered. So I think, yeah, I'll come back to that point again, bringing that's why capitalism is kind of that unspoken poison, I think. But that said, like what we've had in this conversation has been quite, you know, inspiring and, you know, brings it back home in terms of there's so many yeah, incredible people doing incredible work out there. And what's happened in Cuba is quite um, amazing there. Like I was there for the, the what was it, IPC11 or the one mm -hmm. in 2012. Mm. And those projects there were quite incredible as well. But the disparity between what was happening in the city and the country it was quite incredible. And talking to the locals and eating a lot of the street food was quite incredible. And living with the locals in Cuba that was definitely an eye-opening experience. Like we cooked them one dish, like just a, you know, standard big lasagna. And they're like, oh, we feel quite guilty because with the di with the ingredients you could have cooked in that one dish, we could have ate for a whole week. And that was just a standard meal for us as well. So, yep. um, and they're, they're still surviving on Russian, um, Soviet Union, Russian packs that are 40 years out of day. Whoa. So, that's yeah it's pretty it's not kind of the utopia it's portrayed to be it's quite Whoa. a harsh reality for the common cuban too and what we did to get hold of one of these russian um soviet union ration packs that a lot of the cubans survive off in havana is yeah we just bought them a whole heap of fresh veggies from the market for two or three dollars which is a month's wage in cuba and they're, they're like, here, have four of them because that's how much veggies were valued. They were incredibly cheap for us, but they were still incredibly expensive. So what we ate in three or four days in veggies, that costed a month's wage in Cuba. And the unemployment is still quite high. The social disparity is quite high. That's a pattern. Um, that's a pattern yeah. that we see elsewhere. In Africa, when, when Wangari Matai, that's another one of my case studies in my book, she came back after being educated in America and came back and saw that all the families were malnutritioned because they were only eating uh, grains. And they were told, yeah, this is all you need to eat, like live, you know. And so that's what they decided to eat and that's what they were all eating. And meanwhile, they're all dying. 
and getting sick and always fatigued because they're uh, disconnected from their traditional cultural foods. Actually, this is a question I would, uh, this is one of the questions I had for you. So you are able to interface with these cultures that still have their traditions tied to their local environment. And I'm wondering if they're, if they're able to adapt better than we are to climate change because of that. Cause I know, I mean, you gotta, yeah. you gotta like educate the person first in the U S and then you can have a conversation about the environment. Um, but with them, I mean, it's their life. That's their, and they, they know it's something's going on. You go to the Inuit and they're like, the, the sun has moved. Yeah. It's quite a, a complex picture in, in Mexico in particular. Like one thing that comes to mind is my work with the Mayan elders, um, around Playa del Carmen and kind of Cancun, there's still like a few fringe indigenous groups there and there's a bit of virgin rainforest. Um, they've lost a lot of their indigenous knowledge due to being, you know, colonialized by the Spanish, but they've still got a lot of their, their art and their language and a lot of their knowledge is embedded in the patterns within that, which is the same patterns, the same kind of pattern language we have in permaculture and the same pattern language you know, Christopher Alexander talks about and understanding, you know, the phenomenology of space, time and nature. So, and I think a lot of that can be decoded and is being decoded from uh, the native language as well. And also in the, um, in the south, what is it, southwest of Mexico, um, there's uh, indigenous, indigenous populations there still growing heritage varieties of, of corn uh, and they've got incredible properties too Like, but they've had to go from growing uh, you know 6 to 12 different varieties of oh, 12 different varieties of corn to 6 different varieties of corn simply because the user um, moving um out of from from the indigenous communities into the city to get jobs, so that's a um, a challenge for uh, for I think permaculture and indigenous groups in terms of collaboration, in terms of tackling that. It's okay to talk about. It's great to talk about seed heritage, but how do we actually establish those seed structures that provides jobs? And a big clue for that, or a big solution for that, for me, is the work that's been done. Quite, for quite a long time in Thailand and in um, yeah South America with you know the um, IPC there and the tours there they've actually established incomes from these resources to provide jobs for young people to stay on the land and that's actually a better income they can earn there than in the city where they often end up in you know favelas or barrios and a lot of these communities live next to on or on the border of Guatemala in like communities outside um, San Cristobal or Palenque and you know Oaxaca has some of the oldest indigenous agriculture going around like it's where we've got the tomato the chicken the corn from like all these kind of food staples we take for granted were developed by the the Mayans and the Aztecs and the Mixtecas and it's not very commonly known. Like, I didn't know it until I went to the US that um, the Miztecas are actually the um, largest um, surviving group of um, uh, 
indigenous people and they it, like the Aztecs were va- um, based in Mexico City and the Mayans were based down the Caribbean but the Mixtecas um, were based around Oaxaca and there's still two to three million of them um, living in California that have gone up there to get jobs in the US food economy which is def- just a new, new way of talking about slave trade really like that's a um, another topic we might be able to talk about a different day. But um, if you want to research that work further, look at uh, Matt Black and he did a, a piece for the New York Times on it. So uh, he's yeah, that's that's a whole different that's you know kind of that mega scale of of the problem of the industrial food system. So you can get you can you lose side of the scale too and that's something that I, I find quite overwhelmed about too but what kind of keeps me inspired and on track is the, the you know the enthusiasm of people to learn and to apply these solutions and to just once they hear the solution they change oh yeah of, in, a, in an instant it's yeah. amazing isn't it it's incredible yeah well, they've like, known it all along. It's just you uh, know putting those feelings into words, and then they've got their kind of. Um, you know, you the know. first thing I wrote down for the notes right here says, "We know more than we think we do, yet we know less than we think we do." <laughs> yeah, yeah, for it's sure. And so, you know, when you were talking about that, and I was writing down uh, like a final question: What is the next step? And we're talking a lot about um, capitalism, and this kind of really borders onto my early my early education with my brother, um, kind of taking me aside, my older brother. Um, and it's decentralization, and that is the key component for me in in unlocking almost all these problems that permaculture provides. It gives us the actual tools, the the, and not like techniques and physical tools. We're talking about the mental tools that allow you to solve the problems so that you can decentralize so you have you know decentralized food you have decentralized energy water housing resources yeah. because capitalism and there's incredible mm-hmm. examples of that in the US like there's absolutely inspiring examples life changing like you've got the blueprints in action that have been happening there for so long so you don't have to kind of reinvent the wheel you just have to go go to these places in the US or in Australia to, to kind of witness this and you go, oh my God, it's actually happening. This is incredible. It's so inspiring and empowering. I think the greatest issue probably is the redistribution of natural resources and the, well, the liquidation of natural resources into fiscal capital from natural capital. Yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, it's all, like you said, it's right in front of our faces. And where I'm living right now, um, we're in the Central Valley and the neighbors burned two weeks ago. A month before that, the other neighbors burned. There's a fire almost every day um, because they've been siphoning the water off um, way, way up where the, uh, the snow melt happens for over three dec- decades and sending to LA and San Francisco to flush and then sending the rest of it to the desert side of the Central Valley to just, just dump on the ground. And what's going on is, is we've literally destroyed the, the, the water cycle in this area and people don't understand the water cycle so they can't even recognize it but the second they do it, 
I mean, they they, 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 they see it, you know, they, they and it becomes it bec it becomes undeniable in that moment. Um, and I think that's what our I feel like that's what our role is. Um, as a parent, I feel like that's my role too. You know what I mean? To show what's already obvious to the child, like oh, of course that's right. Oh, of course that's wrong. We've just gotten to this point where the adults never got that lesson uh, in, in a lot of these developed countries. Um, and we're, we, we have no idea what's going on in these other countries because our news and our teachers at our public schools and our colleges are all just spoon-fed crap too. And so what they spew yeah. out isn't even real. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's not even food. It's actually, you know, poison. Yeah. It's actually what causes, you know, heart disease and, you know, diabetes and like so many other things can put be put down to your food. And that was a big, you know, revelation for me when uh, I started to, you know, um, spend time with Bill. I was only eating Vegemite sandwiches, but he started feeding me like all, you know, all organs of the animal. Like we'd, we'd eat everything and drink everything, including the blood of the animal. Wow. That's where a lot of, a lot of the nutrients were. So he'd feed me tomato, carrot, and um, fill up like half a glass with, you know, it might be cow's blood one day, it might be duck's blood the other day. So that might be a reason I'm a little bit crazy, but I don't think that's a complete, complete solution. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it was, and having that raw nutrients kind of go into my body kind of gave me this incredible immune system. And I just simply don't get sick now because I was, you know, I have the very, you know, was raised on that organic produce. Like people might be knocked out at work for you know a, a week or two weeks with a head cold i might get it for a day or two but i can still work and function and think so it's having that yeah that incredible food going into your system that gives you this foundation for this amazing for feeling healthy and you're just filled with so much more energy and zest and uh yeah incredible foundation for not only your day but you know your work as well and i think if you don't have that if you just fed these white kind of poison breads uh, just uh, fed, fed this blank energy and it's not not giving you everything you need in terms of the type of energy you need it gives you a peak but it doesn't give you like you know that wholesome energy whole meal you know grains give you and that fiber the grains give you as well or and there's and that's the other dangerous thing that's happened is we've gone from growing um, two to three thousand varieties of wheat to growing one or two varieties of wheat around yeah. the world, and mm -hmm. I think that's incredibly dangerous as well. I've gone from growing twelve twelve thousand varieties of corn with the you know Mayan, Mixtecas, and Aztecs um, a few thousand years ago to growing one variety of corn. Like that's incredibly scary to me but now we've seen a kind of resurgence in this agriculture um or you know permanent agriculture that's the very basis for i think humanity and it's a foundation for a really amazing society to exist as our relationship with our food and our planet and when we collaborate together that's what brings us together to become the people we're you know born to be not separate into individual components of the machine so that's when it starts to become you know really inspiring and life-changing and 
I've seen a lot of these projects firsthand and they just completely blow my mind and inspired me to keep and keep them going and you know if if you're coming across these types of stories and lessons from ancient cultures and you can still apply them you know to modern design and implement them to um, come up with incredible solutions I think that's a lot more valid than having a, a scientific case study that's looking at from a very an, analytical point of view. What permaculture does is it looks at things from a um, synthesis point of view, so looking at the sum of the parts and how this whole system works. So that's a quite a controversial way of looking at things academically and that for, for Bill, that was a reason he got away from universities because it separates things into science, chemistry and physics. But what permaculture does, it says, look, that's great work. Let's bring it together and see what we can do functionally and pragmatically at that. And that's another kind of system of design journey to be to be taken up as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Stuart, for coming on and talking with me. I feel like I really want to, like, figure out when you're going to be in the U.S. and get there so we can hang out in person. Because this was yeah, awesome. Sure. Um, I, I feel like we could keep talking for hours. Uh, but I, I know your time is precious and i got to put my kids to bed. But, uh, but thank you so much. I, I feel like I learned a ton. And uh, I feel like I've been able to be refocused in the right directions. And I'm really excited about getting these two books and looking up uh, Rogan Francis and Ali Sharif. And hopefully everyone else does the same. Yeah, Robin Francis, sorry. Robin yeah. Francis, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. All good. <laughs> yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Matt. It's been yeah, really great and eye-opening to have a look into your, some of your work too. It's really inspiring. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And we can all be part of the solution too. <laughs>